So you want to get your MBA and you've got a few questions. Well, we've got answers. Welcome to the MBA podcast, the spot for honest and actionable advice about business school. For more information, check out our site at thembapodcast.com. Now, here's your host, David O'Brien. Hey, friend. I wanted to have a second discussion about ROI and if an MBA is worth it. First, though, a bit of housekeeping. I'm using something called bass roll-off on my mic now, which should help my voice sound less muddy. Listening to the first ROI episode, I noticed some issues with my voice, which, as I'm told, tends to go from very high to very deep. And this is difficult, apparently, to get the sound right on you know, headphones, your car stereo, your iPhone, whatever you may be listening to. It's definitely awkward and weird to listen to myself, but I had a lot of concerns with the cost of an MBA, and I still do, and I needed to make sure by listening to that episode all the way through that I was expressing what I've experienced to be the truth, but also not making the insane cost of top-tier schools seem too nonchalant or blasé, like, oh, you know, it's totally worth it. I also noticed that I somehow deleted the end of the episode and had to re-record and re-upload that whole episode. I'm, I'm sure I don't need to tell you this, but I'm not a professional podcaster or audiophile. I'm learning as I go, so your patience is greatly appreciated. On that note, though, I could have and tried to put off this podcast until I got everything perfect for you, but you're not here to hear a lovely voice, right? You're here to get good info. My goal is just to ensure that my voice isn't a barrier to the transfer of information by being annoying or, as it seems presently, unintelligible at times because it's washed out or muddy. Additionally, I've asked that you take Steinbeck's advice and strive to be good, not perfect. I need to remind myself of that too. Also, I'd like to think the information that I'm passing along is helpful. While I didn't expect to find a profound piece of advice from this man, Arnold Schwarzenegger, yes, Arnold, offered a really cool way in which to serve the world, and that is to be useful. I like that. So speaking of use, the ROI episode focused heavily on the top tier schools. After reflection, I think this is obviously due to my experience being largely informed by the top tier schools. As much as those staggeringly large numbers like $600,000 are in some insane way worth it, I also have inherently a major issue with the cost of those schools. I'm not sure that this is hyperbolic, though it sounds like it is. You, you know, you can live the American dream if you can pay for it. That's, that's not good. That's, that's anti-good. Honestly, I'll probably have a final episode buried somewhere with my opinion on all this stuff, but that, again, isn't exactly what you're here for. Moving on, let's touch on is it worth it again. I'll use an analogy with some examples from my life. If an MBA from a top-tier school is almost always worth it, an MFA in professional creative writing almost never is. And by worth it, I mean the money. While this makes for a funny story, I don't suggest being like me. I almost got kicked out of DU for getting into it with too many professors. I took a class called The Writing Life, which sandwiched among some other of the fluffiest classes imaginable, somehow elevated my understanding of fluff to a whole new level. Doing the math, I think each class at DU cost something like four or $5,000. I can't quite remember, but it was in the thousands. I paid thousands of dollars to have a so-called professor assign me the arduous task of creating a sacred writing space and figuring out what tea to drink to get me in the right mood to write. This did not sit well with me. Our first butting of heads came when, in front of the class, I asked her if she was going to teach us how to pay back our student loans using writing, you know, the thing we were supposed to be learning about. Side note, 
I have no issue if you have a sacred space or a favorite tea. In fact, I'm learning to bring a little more of that stuff into my life. I'm drinking tea right now. I have a problem paying thousands of dollars to have a professor in graduate school assign the finding of such spaces and such teas as if they are the end-all, be-all only way to write. Our second butting of the heads came when she, in a very passive-aggressive way, trashed one of my classmates' opinions on a war piece we read. The piece was about a wartime deserter and how horrible it was that he might face a firing line. The teacher droned on and on about how awful it was that the deserter could possibly see the barrel of a gun. My classmate, who disagreed with her, used his combat experience from Operation Iraqi Freedom as a counterpoint to highlight all the young men and women who didn't run away and leave their fellow soldiers undefended. She bulldozed over his opinion and carried on with her lecture. I, I wasn't cool with this, and I made sure she knew. Now, I don't suggest doing this. I sucked at picking my battles in my 20s. Now that I'm in my 30s, I'm really trying to channel Vonnegut and to be gentle and to further live the advice Orwell offers as his fourth main point in politics in the English language, which is to say and do nothing barbaric. Anyway, that degree and those experiences were not worth the $60,000 price tag because as much as I loved them and learned from them, they did not offer me any real way to pay back that debt. The top seven schools ask a lot for their education, but they offer a lot as well. Briefly, though, I do think there's kind of a point of vulgarity that asking prices can reach, and the cost of top-tier schools, worth it or not, is obscene. Still, though, my wife and I didn't pass up the opportunity. This brings me to the main couple of points, and as always, thanks for bearing with me. The golden handcuffs. You're stuck, at least for a while, taking really high-paying jobs to pay back your absurdly high levels of debt from getting an M7 MBA. Yes, I understand money isn't everything, but that saying means less and less when you grew up with a father who had to write a 67 check, 67 cent check, which bounced for a gallon of milk so his kids could have cereal in the morning. That was me. That was my dad. But as far as the handcuffs go, let's be clear. My wife, with her high-paying job, isn't living the, the COVID work-from-home, work-life balance is a right, not a privilege life. She's working her ass off all the time. We have zero intention of her working like this forever, and we're taking concrete financial steps to ensure she doesn't have to. Our main goal as husband and wife is to, in our turns, become a good mom and dad, not to be bajillionaires. Still, though, bouncing a check for milk or my mom coming home after yet another 12 hour shift in the NICU, which was more like a 16 hour shift. You know what I'm talking about if you're a nurse and dealing with plantar fasciitis and signing up for another overtime shift the next day so that she could do something like no joke, pay for my dad to take her children to a movie that weekend while she guess what continued to work. That's why I'm always suspicious of people who throw out things like money isn't everything when discussing their $250,000 a year job. Money's not nothing. So be very cautious going to a school like Harvard or Booth. There's a real danger of being tied or cuffed to those handcuffs. Now, what about a school like CSU? The more I thought about it, the more I'm thinking that $100,000 price tag for a non-top 100 MBA is way too much. So I'm changing my tone a bit and saying that for the most part, I wouldn't recommend a school like CSU without some sort of super substantial offset, work study, scholarships, what have you. Be debt averse at any of these schools. Be debt phobic. Be debt phobic if your school isn't in, say, the top 20. 
if you really only need the knowledge and not the network, start with Khan Academy, take some community college courses, courses, be discerning, but you know, look at YouTube, be resourceful. Wow. Okay. This is getting super preachy. I, I just really don't want to contribute to the super shiny wide eyed allure of the top business schools more than I already have. Okay, I think I've covered what I needed to cover to feel good about myself again. Let's move down that list I discussed in the Work With Me episode. And letters of rec, that's a quick topic to discuss. Follow the directions. Generally, when applying to grad schools right out of undergrad, you'll only really know and have professors to write letters of recommendation. For those MBA schools, softly suggesting something like five years of professional work experience after undergrad, but before applying they will likely be wanting professional recommendations from supervisors. While this almost always is not a hard and fast rule, it is much preferred. But here's a baseline from which to work and to apply to your specific situation. Get whomever you think will write the best letter of recommendation possible to submit one for you, and you'll usually need two or three. In every case I've heard of, these letters will be sent directly to the school. You cannot and should not submit letters of recommendation on someone's behalf. Also, in most cases, this will be facilitated through some link or fill-in-the-blank website, what have you, that the school provides. I doubt any school you apply to will simply have the recommender email the admissions department. They might, but in most cases, this is not only incorrect, it literally does nothing as the admissions directors cannot use a letter submitted in that way. So, our, our baseline of the best recommendation possible plays out like this. David, I, I have three recommenders lined up, but only need two. One is my current supervisor, so I'm definitely using her recommendation. The, the second, though, is a previous supervisor, but I didn't work closely with him. And the third is actually a client that I worked with, but I kind of worked for this third person. I managed a major project for her. So she was, in a way, not by title, though, a supervisor. However, she and I kept in close contact, and I'm confident she will write a great letter. I assume you can answer this one yourself. The first and the third person should write these letters of recommendation. Or you might ask something like, I work for myself. What do I do? And to put your mind at ease, this is actually common when applying to business school. Lots of people answer to no one or run their own business. Use the foundation. They must be able and willing to the best of your knowledge to write a strong letter of rec and then move towards, can they speak for me in terms of my professional capacity? Or let's say you're like a personal trainer, you have 30 clients yourself, but three other trainers work under you using your liability insurance, your LLC, marketing, so on and so forth. And maybe you take a small cut from them for that service. While your clients will likely write insanely glowing reviews, you'll need to balance that with the fact that your subordinate trainers can probably speak better to you as a leader and about your business acumen uh, in a better way than the clients can. This may seem like a one-off, but I actually get asked this one often enough to mention it here. One of my clients I train is the CEO of, let's say, Chase Bank or something huge and business-related like that. Yeah, that's a good person to get an LOR from, for sure. Good letters, business-relevant, loosely in line with what the school is looking for. That's the order of importance. Again, good letters. They must write a good letter. Business-relevant loosely in line with the school, what the school is looking for. That's the order. And when I say good letters, I mean, they're, they're positive, right? If, if you, it, it speaks really poorly of someone, if they have a recommender, write a negative review, because not only is it a negative review, but what does that say about you and your knowledge of how other people feel about you? Your self-awareness is kind of lacking. 
All right, a couple of other common questions are, I can't ask my current supervisor because I'm worried about being terminated for X, Y, or Z reasons. Super realistic. It's not a problem at all. Uh, don't use your current supervisor. How about something like my commanding officer offered to write a letter of rec, but then asked me to write it and then they'll sign it. This is common in the military, and I'm sure this happens in the civilian world as well. Avoid this if you can. This is a breach of ethics, and I don't know how a school would ever find out, but I'd encourage you to avoid this situation. We'll discuss this in the military section, but quick aside here, it was my experience that the people in admissions are really hit or miss with military knowledge. I, I read an application whose letter of rec came from a MAGCOM commander, an O10, and the application was from an O3. The general's letter was not only hand-signed, as far as I could tell, but included a handwritten note from the general, I assume to assuage the issue of write it yourself that's so common with military LORs. This was an insane LOR and carried, as it should, a massive amount of weight. Through no fault of their own, though, some of my fellow admissions people certainly thought it was cool, but didn't view it as anything more than that. The point here is this. If you're trying to balance a self-written LOR coming from a person multiple pay grades above you, I'd still say skip it. The O3 getting a handwritten LOR from an O10 doesn't translate as you'd expect it to. All right, let's see. What else is there with LORs? Oh, get these to your recommenders as early as possible. I know it can be awkward, especially if you don't end up going for an MBA, but the earlier the better. If after they say yes, they'll write one, I'd encourage you to get even more awkward and ask them if they need a reminder in terms of deadlines. Believe it or not, most of them will probably say yes. Uh, an additional caveat that I probably should have mentioned earlier is in most sections of the, uh, the LOR, in the application, you can put in optional comments where you can say stuff like, hey, I can't ask my current supervisor because I might get terminated. I'm under an NDA. There's usually a section for that. Go ahead and use it just to explain why you've done what you've had to do. So check with your schools if you're in this situation, but the school I was at almost always offered an extension too for LORs. If you have to turn your application in by the 14th, the LORs could arrive as late as the 21st. Additionally, this is an area of the application where weird things crop up all the time. The company you work for is a cybersecurity company and heavily filters email. And despite your best effort, the university's auto-generated email, which includes a link to an external site, is getting eaten alive by the spam filters. Like, does it even exist? IT can't even unblock it. You might need to use that person's personal email, though the applications tend to prefer a professional email address. Or your recommenders struck out on their own and no longer work for whatever company it may be and only has a personal email address. And I hate to mention this one, but like your recommender dies. That's terrible. I know. But I actually had that one come up. Or your recommender has to write five LOR, LORs for all the different schools to which you're applying. And while you'd never see them, uh, see those letters or know this, maybe your recommender forgot to change the name of the school and sent a letter to Stanford recommending you for Harvard. That happens all the time. So one, even the best recommenders usually wait until the last minute to write an LOR. So contrary to my advice of not waiting to the last minute to submit your application, the last minute crazy one-offs can and do happen all the time with LORs, and usually they're, they're actual legitimate excuses. Also, trust me, all of the admissions departments know and expect you to be applying to multiple schools. They also know that it's super awkward to ask for an LOR and then ask for four more, but it's the way it works. 
a recommendation letter to Harvard sent from Stanford or addressed to Stanford isn't a mark against you and it won't be viewed negatively. It happens. It's fine. The letters of rec also are never super nuanced to the point that they require the recommender to know some differentiating aspects of HBS or Stanford GBS MBAs. It's all generally applicable stuff to all MBA programs. Regardless of the situation, this is where you must keep in contact with admissions. Right when you know there is an issue, email admissions. Make it simple. If you have an application number or maybe your date of birth or something, provide it in the email. Also, email it from the email address you have used to create your application. Uh, it's been my experience that that's usually tied to your application and can let the whoever's answering emails that day, that can let them quickly look up your application. Uh, but try and fix it yourself first. If all else fails, make it a simple and quick fix for the admissions director with an email. That's like, Hey, this is David application number one, two, three, four, five. My recommender, Bill Bilston, uh, email address, Billy Bilsterson at acmecompany.com is no longer working with the organization and I can't reach him. I have a backup recommender ready to go, Mary Maryson. I'm awful at names. And her email address is blah, blah, blah at blah.com. If possible, could you send the LOR link to this new address or guide me on how to do it myself? Thanks for your time. Send them something like that quick to the point, but with enough info that you don't have to email back and forth a bunch. They aren't going to mind if they do have to have a conversation with you. That's totally fine. But again, we want to make this stuff easy for them so that they don't associate your name with anything but positivity. And as a side note, don't don't be afraid to reach out to admissions. If you are worried that you're bugging admissions, that level of self-awareness almost precludes the possibility that you actually are. They are there to help. So go ahead and reach out to them. Now, let's sum up LORs. Get someone who will write a strong recommendation, who knows your business acumen or professional acumen if you're not a business professional, and is as close to the school's preference as possible. When something goes wrong with the LOR process, communicate it right away to the admissions department, and they will almost always be more than happy to work with you. All right, my friends, thank you for listening. Go do something nice for yourself and for someone else. It'll make you feel better. All right, talk to you soon, my friend.